This recording is from Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. More information available at tempe.redemptionaz.com. We have been going through, traveling through the Gospel of Mark for several weeks now, and so we're going to continue to do such this morning, and we're going to jump right in. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 all the way to verses 30, and so we have a lot of scripture to cover this morning. If you don't have a Bible, why don't you go and raise your hand and keep it raised really high, and then one of the ushers will be able to give you a copy of the Bible. And if you don't own a copy, please keep the one that we are handing out to you. It's our gift to you so that you can grow in understanding and knowledge of who Christ is. Uh, So just kind of a way of reminder or recap, uh, so far in the Gospel of Mark, everything has been about Jesus as it should be. Every story we've seen has been about Jesus, how Jesus is being baptized, baptized, how Jesus is healing, how Jesus is casting out demons, how Jesus is calming the sea. Um, We've been looking at Jesus last week, how he heals this young girl, raises her from the dead, and he heals a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And so we have this picture of Jesus. And so now, um, in the few of the stories that we have this morning, is we finally get to see what the people of God do in response to Jesus. So in essence, what does discipleship look like and what are the expectations of discipleship? Um, What does it look like to follow Christ and how expectations really matter? And so that's what we're going to look at in short. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And the expectation is to be comfortable uh, with being uncomfortable. And we're going to talk about that. But before we do, would you guys go ahead and bow your heads, pray with me, and let's ask God by the Holy Spirit to bless our time. Um, We're going to go over a lot of stuff that we can actually get what it is that the Spirit is teaching us this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that you would give us clarity, Lord, and all the things that we will read about, about your disciples, about you being rejected, about John the Baptist, and the many things you have for us today. But ultimately, Lord, help us understand that at the heart of discipleship, Lord, is a posture of us being willing to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, Um, that you would extend your grace in and through us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would um, uplift and show forth the name of Christ, and Lord, Would you recalibrate our hearts, those of us in this room that are followers of Christ, that we would remember afresh what it means to follow you and the commitment that we have with you. God, we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So um, yesterday, um, I did a wedding, and the week before that, on, I did a wedding, and this Saturday coming up, I'm going to do a wedding, and the Saturday after that, I'm going to do a wedding. So I do a lot of weddings. Um, Normally, I don't do the as many, but I believe, if there's some way we can chart this, that this will be the year that we have the most weddings in Redemption Tempe, which is really exciting. Um, And so if you're not married, this is it, right? I mean, this is, like, make it happen this year because the spirit is moving in a special way, right? Now, what what I love about doing weddings is when you get to do all the premarital work before the wedding. And premarital is the work that you do to let people know that marriage is really good but not as good as they thought. Um, And and ultimately, you get, get, like, marriage is good but not the way that they think, right? Um, anyways, we're not going to talk about that, but um, is in the premarital, you're able to do a lot of the expectations. That's when you go, hey, um, how did you guys get to know each other? All right, let's talk about your deepest, darkest stories. Let's talk about your deepest, dark, darkest stories. One of the couple says, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, and then, and then the, other, the other couple says, you know, I don't want to be with you anymore. Then like the next week, they're like, we want to be together again. Actually, I didn't really tell you the whole truth. And that kind of goes on throughout marriage. And so there, there is this sense, though, of you trying to give people an expectation of what marriage will be like, an expectation about how things will be and how life will be, a realistic expectation. And so on that wedding day, what I say to every couple is, you're about to approach these vows and approach these vows with realistic expectation. This person can never fully meet your needs and this person can never fully meet your needs, et cetera, et cetera. Because marriage in itself, I believe, is very akin to discipleship. 
that if you want to have a good relationship and you have, a, you have to have a good, ex- with God, you have to have a good expectation of what it is that he's called you to do, and I think it's the same thing in marriage, that marriage in itself is having the posture of being comfortable with being uncomfortable, that you're taking another person's life and then you're joining together, and the realities of marriages are beautiful and great, and they are really good, but not usually in the way that you think of them, that you make those, cap- those, those commitments and you make those vows to one another uh, to have and to hold from this day forward, better for us, all of those things um, to be with that person. And you make that commitment. And I remember what it was like when we got married, right? You get married and you get all excited and you, you know, have your first dance. And they play that song, whatever song you pick. Many of the people in our church for a reason pick some lame country song. Um, which, it's not that lame, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Really cool country song. And, um, you know, where's the R&B at these days, right? You know, where, where are you at? You know, it's like... Me and Holly, we, we had music soul child. I don't know if you guys know what music is. I, I love you when your hair turns gray. I still want you if you gain a little weight, girl, <laughs> right? The way I feel for you, where you at, Holly, will always be the same. <laughs> Y'all went there. But anyways, you have these things. I'm going to love you forever. I'm going to, you have these commitments, but you have an expectation of like things won't be the way they are today. But as long as the commitment is there, um, as long as I know that I need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, something good is really going to happen. What we see here in, in the scriptures here, there's a lot here. And I'm just going to tell you that. We're going to go through a lot of scripture in a short period of time. So we're going to fly through it. And then we're going to have two implications towards the end. But ultimately, if you think of this grid, it is an expectation of discipleship. And an expectation of discipleship, not the way that many of us approach Jesus. Oftentimes we hear people's testimonies. When a person gets on stage and says, my life, with Je- my life before God was really bad, it was horrible, all these bad things happened, I believe in Jesus, my life is great. Um, you want to say, okay, keep telling the rest of the story. I believe in Jesus and reality set in and my life is better, my life is good because God is good, but it's not always like the expectations that maybe that story would give. And so there are hard times, there are dark times, there are moments when God calls me to do things when I don't want to do them. There are moments when God calls us as Christians, as disciples, to do things that may cause the people around us not to like us for doing it or saying it. And that is actually when you're living more like Christ, when you realize this whole thing is uncomfortable and I just got to be comfortable with all of that. Then I'll have a great relationship with Jesus, and then I'll have an understanding of what it means to follow him. And so that's what we're walking through today and understanding that proper expectation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, here's my prayer. Some of you who are not Christian in this room, that you would have a good understanding of what it means to be a Christian, that life is not always peachy keen. So those of you guys who are Christian in this room, that you've kind of just been in this kind of um, apathetic, kind of, I just kind of walk with Jesus, I believed in him, and so one day I'll go to heaven, but you don't actually pursue discipleship, that God would bring a correction in your life. And for the many of us who are actually pursuing discipleship that have probably pursued comfort more than anything, that God himself would convict us to realize, oh, that's what it's like to actually follow Jesus. And so um, if you're with me, let's pick up here in chapter 6, verse 1. And he, speaking of Jesus, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get those things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, now here's the picture here. Jesus had just come back um, from healing people, casting out demons. Um, and he's just been doing incredible work, and he's about to go home to Nazareth. Like, this should be a good thing. Like, I'm going home. Like, I've been doing all these things, and I get to go home and be with my people. Um, I'm, they're going to be excited to see me. I'm excited to see them, my brothers, my sisters, everybody who grew up with me. And we know about Nazareth. Nazareth is actually a really, really small town. 
And some of us, you guys know what it's like to grow up in a small town. Everybody knows you. They've known you forever. And of course, they, sell, they want to celebrate your success, and they heard this guy left Nazareth, and he's been healing people, raising people from the dead. It's a good thing. It was supposed to be a really good homecoming for Jesus. Like, he was going to come back with his old letterman's jacket, right? He's in a little patch that said, raise people from the dead, right? He's going to have all the things that, like, that a small-town hero should have. And he gets there, and it seems like they're going to receive him, but they don't. He shows up in the synagogue, as he often does, and he takes the scroll, and he begins to teach, as he often does, with power and wisdom and authority, as he often does. And they're going, like, dang, like, how did he get this? How did he get this wisdom? How did he, how did he learn all this? And it seems like they're like, this is cool, but then they show their hearts. Wait a minute. This is little Jesus. We know Jesus. He grew up here. We know, we, know his, we know his brothers, and they name all the brothers, and we know his sisters too, which I don't know what that means. And, and they're saying, we, we know that he's the son of Mary, the carpenter. Who does he think he is? There's this sense of saying, who does Jesus think he is? And they begin to reject him. They reject who he is because they cannot stand the fact that he's just normal. And I think what's interesting here is when you look at this, you begin to look deeper into the way they think about Jesus. When they say that we know him, that's the saying, you're just like one of us. There's no way you could be the son of God. You grew up here. Nothing good comes from here. Um, also, you begin to say, as they talk about his brothers and his sisters, they said he's the son of Mary. You never were able to refer to people as the son of the mom. It was usually the son of the, the husband, unless you didn't believe that it was his dad. And so we don't really look at the Christmas story like the way that it's actually told. We just go, this baby came in this world, and this virgin birth, and this little girl, and there was a manger. It was beautiful. Rich it was. But like, think of it in the eyes and the ears of the, the original audience. There's this teenage 12-year-old, 13-year-old girl who's engaged to this man named Joseph, who are not supposed to be having physical relationships, um, and all of a sudden, she's pregnant. And she tells everybody, it's not Joseph's, and it's nobody else's. I have not been with another man. God put this here. Y'all, if somebody came into your, your small group, your friend told you that story, you would look at her like, child, please, right? Who's going to believe you? And so there were many who believed, and there were many who didn't. So they're saying, this is the son of Mary. We're not even sure if Joseph is really his dad. Like, there's this derogatory, like, Jesus is so normal, which what I like about this, it just shows that when Jesus walked this earth, he walked this earth like normal people. But there was nothing in Jesus for 30 years for them to go, oh, yeah, you were going to be the son of God. Like, he just did normal things with normal people. But because of his, the, the, the posture of just being mundane, they would not receive him. Now, we go, if we knew Jesus, and Jesus was walking, and Jesus from our hometown, and Jesus went to high school with us, and he did all these miracles, we would believe in him. All right, we think we would. All we got to do is, for those of you in this room who are Christian, um, you believe in Jesus, you've trusted in him, and there are moments in your life, and maybe now, that you don't believe in Jesus because your life has been mundane. Like, I already know these things. All right? Like, I want something else. There's nothing else other than the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. You don't move on to anything else other than the gospel of Christ. But if we're honest with ourselves, we become very numb to the gospel. That like his family and his friends, we want him to do a miracle here. And if you could do a miracle here, then maybe we might believe in you, that we don't just like having Jesus in the very mundane day of our life. This is waking up in the morning, open up on our Bibles, reading it, um, praying to God, going to work, or going to school, or whatever it is that we do, come home to our family and friends, and go to bed, wake up, do the next thing again and again and again, just a normal life. We go, oh man, if God were really real, he would do more of this, because I hear about what he's doing in other states, and other countries, and other people's lives. But man, just the mundane relationship with Jesus, I want that. And many of us get there. And here's what Jesus says here. 
Verse 4. He says, And he took offense of him, verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and among um, relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And that he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the village teaching. So here's this, Jesus says this, this, this proverb. He goes, a prophet is not without honor, except for his hometown and with the people around him. Here's the reality. Um, you want to know what it's like to be comfortable with being uncomfortable? Is when you realize that some of the people who are closest to you do not accept what God is doing in your life. That sometimes the people who have known you, the people who you were excited to go and report what God has done in your life, what God is doing in your life, and those are the people that are just going, uh-uh, not at all. When I became a Christian, um, it, it, was, it, was, it was a radical change. I was a completely different person, and, and, and God did something in my life, and I knew it had to be God, and I wanted to tell people about it. Um, and I remember sitting down with a friend of mine, and mainly because he, there were some things in his life that were, just, that were just not good, that he was doing some things that I used to do myself. And I'm looking at it going, I don't care whether you believe in God or not. These things are not going to be good for you and the people around you. Like, you got to stop these things. And so I came alongside this, this person and, and said, hey, here's some things you ought not to be doing. I don't think these are good. And, and this is what God has done for me. I know I used to do these things. I tried to be as humble as possible. And he looked at me and said, who are you of all people to tell me this? Like, I know you. Like, I can go and tell you all the things that you've done. And he started recapping all the things we did. I'm like, yeah, we did do that. You know, you're right. Uh-huh. And then, but I'm like, hey, I understand that. I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm saying now that in Christ, if anything, I'm just coming to serve you. And I'm thinking, man, can't you see this? If anybody should be able to tell you, like, I'm your boy. Like, I should tell you. It was like, no, thank you. And then I remember uh, months after that, going back home, home to me, Southern California, and I'm excited to talk to all of my friends about Christ. I'm like, have you ever been there before? It's like, all right, I'm going to tell this person about Jesus, this person about Jesus, not this person because I don't really like him. I'm going to tell this person about Jesus, right? I get home, and my best friend, best man in my wedding, still one of my boys to this day, he looks at me and he goes, I'm done with this, man. Are you serious? Could you not talk about Jesus anymore? I feel like you're just being a hypocrite because in a few months, this is all going to change anyway. I'm like, dang, Gina, like, is there anything I could do in my hometown, right? And now I'm not saying I'm Jesus by any means, but I am saying that if Jesus is at work in your life, just don't be surprised if the people who are closest to you, who know you, um, don't accept what Christ is doing in your life. That doesn't mean you don't love them. That doesn't mean that they're never going to come around. I'm just saying part of an expectation is that there, there could be rejection, even from family members, doesn't mean that they hate you or you hate them or anything. Just, just there's, an ex, there's an expectation there. And that Jesus looks at it, and I, he marveled at it. He steps back, and he looks, and he goes, man, I'm not even doing mighty works around here. But Jesus being Jesus couldn't just not do anything. I laid some hands on some people, healed some people. But I didn't do a whole lot there. And he says he was astonished by their unbelief. What's interesting is Jesus is not astonished by people's sinful acts or their evil deeds. He's more astonished by their unbelief. Their unwillingness to receive the gift of salvation. Their unwillingness to believe that he is the son of God to transform their life. Their unwillingness to trust in him by faith. Their unwillingness to reject salvation. They said, I don't want any part of it. They said, there's a solution here. Like, you're dying. You're dead. And the only way that you can have life is in me. I'm coming to you to give you life. And people are going, no, thank you. I don't want it. And it says he's astonished. And so he went around and he began to teach. Now, I think one of the things we need to realize from this is part of the reasons I believe that we don't see mighty works of God is because of our unbelief. We only usually believe, and we talked about this last week, what we can see, taste, and touch. 
And Jesus clearly looks at these people and going, you don't believe, and I'm going to honor your unbelief and what you don't believe. And he walks away from that. Now, on a human side of it, again, one of the expectations of the disciple is realizing that when God is at your work, there may be people in your life who are not going to want any part of it. It's not fun, but it's a reality. It's a reality. Well, Jesus doesn't just stop there. Now he begins to call the 12, his disciples, and say, now I'm going to send you out. So far, you've been with me. You've been watching me. You've been an apprentice or a disciple. That's what a disciple does. He follows somebody. You've seen how I do it. Now I'm going to send you guys out. Pick up with me in verse 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until... Um, you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, so then you leave, shake off the dust of, that's on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed to the people that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and, and anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. So here's this picture here where Jesus now takes his disciples and he's saying, I want you to go on mission. I want you to go and I want you to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. How does this work? He goes, here's what I don't want you to go with. I don't want you to have a bag. I don't want you to have extra money in your belt. I don't want you to have two tunics. Tunics are just jackets. Um, and that day, if you had more than one jacket, you were perceived as being someone who's rich. And he's saying, listen, live below your means and go and trust that I'm going to provide for you. So a staff, uh, one tunic, like two, like two tunics, too much. Like one starter jacket, not two. One bomber jacket, not two. Whatever it is that you're into, right? Just bring one of those and then go along and trust that I will provide. Now, here's what we understand as disciples. I think this would be valuable for us. Live below your means. Jesus is not saying that if you are a true Christian um, that you don't have two jackets, or if you're a true, true Christian, you don't wear anything but sandals or anything like that. And sadly, people have taken this of saying this is what this means. It's not saying you should be rich, you should be poor. It's not saying any of those. He's just saying whatever you are, live below your means and trust that God's going to provide for you. Because all of us, we try to find our security in something else other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Some of us are people who look at our banking accounts. And you know who you are, that you're constantly looking at how much money you have because that's your security. Because you know if that money runs out, I'm done. I don't know if anybody else is going to provide for me. And so you look at it, you look at it, you look at it, when ultimately that's not your ultimate provider. God is your provider. Um, when it comes to some of us, our security comes in if we have cap, social capital. As long as I got the people in my life that are around me, I know that I'm good, which it's a reality. People in our lives do help us, but our provision ultimately comes from God. So God says, here's how I want you to live. I'm going to send you out two by two, which is the way they did things here. I want you to go in such a way that you have to provide and um, you have to trust in me to provide. There's faith there. But the disciple of Jesus has to trust that ultimately God will provide. So I live below my means. Whatever that means may be, I live below it and I don't trust in stuff, but I trust in my Savior. And Jesus says this, when you go into people's houses, let them welcome you in. A very hospitable culture there. People would welcome in. You eat what they, they tell you to eat. You sleep where they tell you to eat. Those, just trust me. I will provide through them. And if there are people who won't accept you, he says, walk out and, and, and shake the haters off. Is that I mean, like a translation there, right? He says, knock the dust off your sandals. Now, here's what that means. It just means let it be a testimony to them that they rejected the gospel. doesn't mean that they're never going to come back and believe the gospel. Um, the story of my first friend that I told you about that said, I don't want to be a part of this. He's now a Christian, walks with Jesus, etc. It took a long time, but God saved him. doesn't mean that just because he shook the dust on him, that 
that God says he's done with them. It's just a testimony of saying, you heard that there's one way, and it's through Jesus, and yet you rejected it. Um, and then he begins to show the message of the disciple, which is something we need to understand here. Verse 12, it says this, so they went out, they trusted in God that he would provide. Very uncomfortable. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That was their message. The message was really simple. You're not living for God, live for God. Really simple. They went to people's houses and said, hey, you're not living for God, live for God. It's called repentance. And sometimes you hear that word repentance and we wanna stay away from that word for whatever reason. We think it's too heavy of a word, it's the only thing we have in order for us to know God. Listen, with no repentance, we cannot know God. We have some people who say they want to tell you how much God loves you, and he absolutely does. But if you don't repent and live in that love, you don't access it, you don't receive it. There are some people who would tell you you're wrong and you're in sin, and that could be true. But if they don't give you a hope into the gospel of Jesus Christ, if they just give you things to do to stop sinning, they did not give you hope. And so there has to be a balance of understanding, yes, we are in sin and we are not living for God, but the only way that we can is not by our own means or efforts or our behavior modification, but only the transformation that comes in knowing that God loves us and that he sent his son Jesus for us, that is understanding that we are part of his beloved community, that now I repent because I'm turning to the one who had infinite cost to himself, gave himself that I may have life. Their message was very simple. But when it comes to those of us who follow Christ, when's the last time we told someone that they should repent of something that they're doing and return to Jesus? Like, when's the last time we looked at somebody's life and said, what, what you're doing, where you're going, ends in destruction because I love you and because God loves you. Turn and receive his love. Turn and receive his forgiveness. Turn and give your life to Jesus. There's a simple message that they have, and that's something that we're, we're uncomfortable with doing. And and in order for us to be followers of Christ, how could we not? How did we become Christians? Those of us in this room are Christians. How did we become Christians? There was a conviction in our life of some sin or particular sins and our outlook on life. We believed that there was hope in Christ, and we turned and repented, and we followed Christ. That's how we became Christians. The way we grow as Christians is we naturally drift with the currents of culture Um, with our own thoughts, our own sinful actions, and that we find ourselves over here again. And the way that we grow is not just by spiritual disciplines. We do the spiritual disciplines to remind ourselves of who in which we are saved by. The love of the Father, the love of the Son, and the power of the Spirit. That everything in which we do to become Christians and everything we do to grow as Christians come in a matter of repentance and faith in God and his love. So when we withhold that message, from people, we are no longer giving them good news. We are no longer being loving. We are no longer being disciples of Jesus Christ. And that should weigh heavy on us to think, when's the last time I told somebody about the love of God and how they should repent of their ways and find salvation and life and love in Christ Jesus? And the disciples did that. They understood that that's uncomfortable. And most of you who have sat down with someone and tried to share the gospel with them, you know how uncomfortable that is. You know how hard that can be. You know how awkward and weird it could be. Um, But you also know that the only way that you became a Christian is that somebody shared it to you, so how could you not do it to anybody else? So they shared the gospel, and then they also had the word um, and and proclamation, but also in demonstration. Verse 12 here, or 13, it says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. What that means is they actually did something. They didn't just talk about Jesus. They actually did something. They saw the spiritual demonic world, and you know what? They believed in it. Guys, demons are real. They didn't just exist in Jerusalem, and then they stopped and said, ah, we ain't gonna go nowhere, we lazy, right? No. <laughs> like, there are demons, there's, there's demonic presence. 
Um, we don't think about it, but we need to pray for it, against it. Um, when it comes to many who are sick, we need to lay hands on people constantly and pray that God would heal them. Um, we need to pray for people. We need to feed people. We need to do all the things. We can't just talk about Jesus and not live for Jesus. Both of those things go together. And when you see through the gospel, and even through the book of Acts, that you, you never see the proclamation of God's word without the demonstration of God's word. And you never see the demonstration and power of God without the gospel being preached. That those things go hand in hand. That we're a people about God's word and a people who actually do God's word and the life as a community of people called the church. So, so far, if you're looking at this, expectations, expect rejection at some point. Um, expect reliance. That you rely that God is the one who's your provider. So you have to ask yourself, am I relying upon God right now? Or am I relying upon something else? Another thing is an expectation is a disciple is expected to talk about Jesus, to share that there's repentance and faith, to share the gospel with people. It's the only way people come to know Jesus. Um, lastly here, this story we see is a very awkward story, weird story, a John the Baptist who ultimately ends with him, his head getting cut off. So expectations of a discipleship. Verse 14, okay? <laughs> King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known, and some said, John the Baptist, who has been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And brothers said, Elijah, and others said, mm, he's a prophet, like the, one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to marry your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him to be put to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard of him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So here's the situation now. Jesus is doing all these miracles. Now his people are even doing miracles, and they're following him. And so the word gets back to Herod, who's kind of like a king in that day, and Herod runs things. And then so far, we haven't heard much about John the Baptist since chapter 1. It's because he got killed. And so now we finally hear how he got killed, and it's that he had been going to Herod. And he told Herod, out of conviction, what you're doing is wrong. Like, this is not good. You should not be married to your brother's wife. You took your brother's wife. I don't care if you're a Christian, you follow God or not. This is just not good, right? You don't take your brother's right wife. That's wrong on so many levels, man. Like, you cannot do that. And Herod is like, you're probably right, but I, I mean, I'm already married to her. It's, it's and he goes back again. You're still wrong. This is not the relationship you should be in. There's this conviction. And what did it say about Herod that I love? Herod said he wanted to keep John safe. I mean, he had power. He could have said, John, John, what are you doing? Who even let you in? What are you doing talking to me? You remember John the Baptist? He was the man eating locusts and stuff. I mean, people didn't even, John, this is John. But you know what he was convicted by? He said he was a righteous man and he was a holy man. It was his godliness. It was John's godliness, right? Think about this when it comes to our evangelism or us con convicting people of sin, which that's not even our role. It's the Holy Spirit's role. We think that the way we're going to win people is if we begin to just live like them in such a way. And there's a part of that is true. But what many of, many of us end up doing is we end up just living like them in such a way that there's absolutely no difference between them and us. And when I say them and us, I'm saying those who love God and those who don't. The only difference is that we are saved by his grace, but when his grace begins to filter into our hearts and our lives, that there is, an, there is a level of we want to look like and resemble the one who gave his life for us. John got that. And his entire life was built around how can I be godly? Like sometimes we ask good questions, Am I being a good husband? Am I being a good mother? 
How do I grow my relationship with God? That we become so preoccupied with our own personal growth, which is good, that we miss the main thing, which is how do I know and follow and love God? That if I know and follow and love God, those are results of a relationship with Christ. Like, John, John got that, and he wanted that for everybody else around him, including those in power. So he goes to Herod and says, this is not lawful, this is not good. And Herod goes, I know, and you know what, I'm going to keep you safe, because somehow I'm intrigued by your godliness. Sometimes we think that godliness in itself is actually going to scare people away. Sometimes we think that being godly is just going to make us seem too righteous. Listen, we are called to be righteous. Jesus says this, be holy from I am holy. The only way that you can become righteous and the only way that you can become holy is by relationship with Jesus. And if you are having relationship with Jesus, you should be becoming holy and you should be becoming righteous. That those words, holiness, righteousness, obedience, ah, let's get them out of the Christian church. It's not words we talk about. Am I obeying God? Do I have conviction for God? John has that to the point where even his life is going to be taken because of it. Because the story says this, um, because Herod has taken Philip, his brother's wife, her name is Herodias, good name, um, and, and Herodias, Herodias does not like this man. And so Herodias has been trying to get rid of John forever. But because of her husband, he's just like, no, I'm not getting rid of John. But there came an opportune moment, and here's how this moment went. Pick up with me again in verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod... Um, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to, to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorrow. But because of his oaths and his guests, he, had not, he did not want to break his word. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard it, they came and took his body and they laid it in the tomb. Um, now, that's, that's extreme, but there's a lot of things we learn from this. First, let's go back to the story, is now there's an opportunity for Herodias, and the opportunity happens because it's her husband's birthday, and he throws a party with his nobles and, his, and the military. The nobles are the elite of the elite. These are men, and the military people are men. I just want to give you the context for this story because there's kids in the room. There's all these men and a party for his birthday, and then one person comes in to dance, so, you can find places like this up Scottsdale Road. <laughs> Don't go there, all right? Don't go there. So, that's like, like, she comes in, dances, and he's like, anything you want, anything you want, probably like alcohol in it, anything you want, girl, anything you want, right? <laughs> and now, he's showboating in front of his whole audience, like, up to, my, up to half the kingdom, I got it, my pockets stay fat, whatever it is, right? <laughs> and... She goes out to her mom and saying, this dude's drunk. And he, had, he said, I can give him, he, he's going to give me anything. And she says, okay, ask for the head of John the Baptist. He goes in, she goes, here's what I want immediately, the head of John the Baptist. And he sobers up like, what did I do? What, do I, what did I do? And before we start laughing at this, we've all been in that situation. Whether you're intoxicated or not, that you just go with your sin and you go with your sin. It's fun, it's in the moment. And then reality hits you and you go, what did I do? 
because there's consequences to sin. Let me, let me pause this. I'm not on my notes here for a second. But, um, so one of the things we fail to realize is God does save us from the penalty of our sin. In Christ Jesus, you will never experience the penalty of God's wrath for your sin. Never. You will never, you will never, you will never. It would be unjust of God to pay double penalty. He, Jesus has already absorbed it. However, there are consequences for our sin. There are consequences of our sin. When I was a high school pastor, I was reluctant to tell my story because I knew I had all these teenagers in there. They go, oh, that's cool. You acted like an idiot, and at 22, you got saved. That's the life that I want, right? And, and you know what? There's consequences. I still suffer consequences of my sins um, that I did before I knew Jesus and sins that I do when, uh, now that I know Jesus. And all of us, there's consequences. And there comes this reality where, where Herod realizes, man, I just did something I didn't want to do. There's not a person in this room. I don't care if you love God or not that you haven't got to the point where you're like, man, I just did something I didn't want to do. And all this is because of one moment, all this is because of pursuit of something, all of this is because of, ultimately, all of this is because you never check sin. And when sin is left unchecked, it will always grow to the point that eventually it will choke you out. And so now he has to behead this person who he didn't want to behead. You know why? Because he made an oath. And for all these people, he goes, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And she's, all right, I want John. And he said, very sorry, but he had him executed. I, I want you to see here, okay, don't, don't, don't miss this. Um, when it just comes to our discipleship and being comfortable with, with, with being uncomfortable. We're going to deal with John's side on this, but let's deal with the fact that we're not all like John. We're actually more like Herod than we would think. We're, we're, we're not all like Jesus. We're actually more like the town people than we think. And so, so what we have here is a man who leaves his sin unchecked. So first he has adultery. Someone comes to him and says, hey, you got to stop. You got to end it. He doesn't end it. Then you have debauchery. So he's wilding out in this party. Doesn't stop. All of a sudden, there's murder. There's murder. I don't care who you are. If you don't deal with sin here, it will find you over here. It will find you. You think, I got away with it. No, you did not. You deal with it here. And it's not to scare you. This is saying God has grace that you can actually deal with your sin when it's this small so it doesn't grow that it's way over here. And as Christians, all right, not just people in this room who are not Christians, as Christians, we're going to sin. But let's deal with it when it's really small. It's like weeds. You see them. You don't want them there. But then you don't deal with them. You don't deal with them. And then all of a sudden you look and you go, how did that happen? Let me tell you why it happened. Because way over here, you left it unchecked. And there's people in your life, there's a word of God in your life that's constantly telling you, you're going, oh, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And you can't. So repent. Turn to Jesus. He can do it. <laughs> he, it's not about what you, it's he can do it. He can, he will, he always does. He always comes through. Now, on the flip side, could we be like John? When we see people in our life that haven't dealt with it here, do we go and tell them right here? And when they're still not dealing with it here, do we go and tell them here with humility and brokenness? Because we got logs in our eyes, and they only got a speck in theirs. Do we do that? Do we deal with it here? Are we willing to do it to lose a friendship? Are we willing to do it that someone might be actually mad at us? Are we willing to do it that someone might expose our sin? Are, are, are we willing to do that because we love people? Are we willing to do it ultimately because we're willing to stand up for the truth of God, that we are so convicted about God that we're able to do that? Or are we more likely the people who just kind of go, I already told them once, I'll just let them do it? No. Discipleship is life on life for life that we happen to be in this together, that we want to look like our Savior, and whenever we're not, that people come alongside us and lovingly say, because I love you, Ricardo, these are some things in your life. Oftentimes, that's your spouse, if you allow her, if you allow him. So here's a question. 
as a disciple of Christ, those of you who are, Christian, who are Christian, do you have people in your life who are like John the Baptist? If not, find them. And are you like John the Baptist? Do you have people in your life that you lovingly come alongside and say, dude, that's not lawful. I love you, but that's not lawful. Help me help you. I love you. Because when we do that, um, it's going to be very uncomfortable. But be, if we become comfortable in doing those things, we might actually begin to live like Jesus. Amen? So there, there's two walkaways here. I've got two quick implications. First, how do we do this? And the second is, how do we remain doing this? How do we become disciples? How do we remain disciples? First word is call. And I'm not talking calling like what God's called you to do in terms of vocation. That's a different message. Calling meaning, how do I go about being like that? How do I go about going, being this man of God or this woman of God? How do I go about um, experiencing godliness and righteousness in my own life and the life of people around me? Well, go back to verse 7 with me. It says, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority. That word called right there makes a difference in everything here. That God never calls you to do something of which he does not equip you to do. That it's not about you now buck up, get your life together. It's about you repenting and turning to Jesus and realizing the life that he has for you. And walking in the footsteps of following Jesus so closely that you begin to look like him. That yeah, you wake up in the morning and you read your Bible because you want to look like Jesus. Yeah, you're on your knees and on your face praying to him because you want to look like him. Yeah, you're serving the poor and the people around him because you want to look like him. Yeah, you are confronting people and allowing people to confront you in love because you want to look like him because you've been called. And the, the one who calls you matters the most. And we've said this before, that you're not called because you were qualified, that God thought, you know what, I got this plan of redeeming the world and you would make a good person for me, I need you. But you're actually qualified because you're called. That means you're free. You will not fail in anything that God has called you to do if you're trusting in God to do it through you. If you do it yourself, you'll fail all the time. And you know what? When you don't fail, you're going to take the credit for it. But if you trust in Christ to do it in and through you, you'll give him the glory. And you won't fail. You'll stumble, and he'll forgive you. But ultimately, it's the call. It says he called them, and he gave them authority. That literally means power, meaning you are now an extension of Jesus to the people around you when you submit to the call of God, when you trust in the person of Jesus. So the first implication of being comfortable with being uncomfortable is trusting and remembering the call of Jesus and never getting old of the mundane, day-to-day -day life with Jesus. Second one is conviction. How we grow as disciples is we may start off really fast. Um, some years ago, I think I shared this with you guys, I, I was not in my right mind. I was so stupid, and I signed up for a half marathon. <laughs> and when I got to the half marathon, I'm normally a sprinter. I'm normally. 16 years ago, I was a sprinter. Um, <laughs> and, and when I got to this race, we started off, my wife kept saying, hey, you got to, like, pace yourself. You got to like, pace. What do you, 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 you think this is, salsa? I'm ready to go, right? And so... And, and people are passing me and start, start sprinting and sprinting and sprinting. And then you hit this wall. And I'm like, I quit. <laughs> I quit. I'm done. And I think when it comes to Christianity, sometimes we hear the call and we, we just go hardcore. We don't realize this is a long race. And the only thing that's going to actually sustain us is that we remember the call and we're convicted. We're convicted by our, our own sin and we're convicted by sin in the world. We're convicted by the authority of God and his word. We're convicted by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that the greatest story told is that Christ has come, and he's lived for us, and he's died for us, and everybody who believes in him has salvation. And we're constantly live with this conviction to the point that it begins to transform us, that we become holy because of Jesus, that we become righteous because of Jesus. We become godly because of Jesus, and every part of our life is the one who calls us who is Jesus, 
and the one who convicts us, who is Jesus by his Holy Spirit. And then, as we continue to live that life, we understand what it means to be comfortable with being uncomfortable as disciples. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you give us an expectation, Lord, that following you is, Lord, godly, is right, is good, is desirable, but it's hard. That it means that we suffer loss. God, we even um, give the glimpse that many of us, Lord, may experience some form of persecution, but you've called us, Lord, and there's nothing that you've called us to do that we will fail in because of your strength and your love. Help us, Lord, to be obedient. Help us to have a spirit of conviction. Help us to know that it's not through our qualifications, our personality, or how we're made up, but it's ultimately because of what you have called us to do in the name of Jesus Christ. So those of us who are husbands, that we would understand that we're called and we're equipped by you. Who are mothers, that we're called and equipped by you. Who are single, we're called and equipped by you. Who are lawyers and bankers, who are students, we're called and equipped by you. That whatever it is and whoever we're called to and whatever place you've called us, that you've called us, Jesus, and we live our life for you. And God, we pray for that steady conviction to be reminded of the beauty of Jesus. To want to look like him and to want to know him and to want the world to do the same. Father, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.